Living here on the mountain for the last 44 years, with the limited shopping choices available, Aaron and I have become quite familiar with what used to be called mail order shopping. You know, for those of you unfamiliar with that term, and I think everybody here understands it, um, mail is how we used to um, to receive what were called letters. You know, and if you can remember what those are, or what we now know as email or messages, mail order shopping was pioneered by Sears Roebuck and Company, uh, later by J.C. Penney's, which both used to be department stores. I think there's still J.C. Penney's around. But you could order anything from Sears in the mail, up to and including entire houses, which would be shipped on railroad cars to you, the wood numbered and ready for you to put together like a Lincoln Log House. In fact, in the Sky Forest area here in Lake Arrowhead, uh, there are a number of uh, Sears houses. I worked on one just a few years ago. Amazing quality of lumber because they were back from the 20s and the uh, old growth forest. Lumber you can't even imagine finding in a, in a store today. And you would think that Sears and J.C. Penney were absolutely ideally situated for what we see today with online shopping. It is incredible to me to see the short-sightedness of man that the people who invented catalog shopping did not see the internet and its potential coming. That's just an aside. I, I'm just still flabbergasted by the failure of those two institutions. Things have changed in the nearly half century that I have lived up here. When we used to order, there was a, there was a Sears outlet store in Cedar Glen. I don't know if you know that, but your big items would be shipped there for you to pick up, okay? I don't even remember them coming by uh, any other way. You would go to the Sears outlet in Cedar Glen, pick up your washing machine, your refrigerator, haul it home, it's gone, right? It doesn't exist there anymore. Everything is turned into online shopping. And Aaron and I, being of a certain age, had resisted the intrusion of this newfangled system into our lives. And quite happily, I might add, until one Wednesday, and it was about three years ago, we realized we were out of communion cups for the Sunday service. Now, in the good old days, after the communion service, we would wash the glass cups. Right? You would just wash them out. They would be there the next week, but not anymore. Nowadays, you have to make sure you have the plastic cups on hand. And because of that, now see, I'm blaming this on the church, okay? Because of that, we signed up with Amazon Prime. I know, mark of the beast and everything. I, I understand that thoroughly. But by ordering them on, by a Wednesday, we got them before the Sunday service and were able to have our communion 
as scheduled on Sunday. The point of this little excursion into how things were and how things are now is terminology and the meaning of words. Uh, When you would call Sears and place an order, the person on the other end would write down your order or type it in or whatever they did because a lot of it was pre-computer. And they would pass that order on to their warehouse, right? You go to a warehouse, and from the warehouse, it would ship out. Olden days, if you watched the Sound of Music, the Wells Fargo wagon is, that's not the Sound of Music, that's the music man, the Wells Fargo wagon is a-coming, bringing you your Sears Roebuck order. Well, it is now the United Parcel Service or FedEx, Now, of course, when you access Amazon Prime, you make your selection online. You push a little button. Up comes your shipping information. And and your credit card is sitting there floating in the Internet somewhere. And they know that, too. And all you have to do is push a finish button, finish and pay. And it wings its way to you. But when they get that order, they sell it to a place that they call, and I love this, the fulfillment center. Doesn't that sound nice? That's better than a warehouse, by far. A warehouse is this dusty thing with a bunch of things stacked on pallets. But a fulfillment center, that sounds like Disneyland, doesn't it? So anyway, it goes to the fulfillment center to be, you guessed it, fulfilled. And once it is fulfilled, they then print a shipping label to finish the order. After it is shipped, it wings its way to your doorstep and a little ding on your cell phone informs you that your order has been delivered, right? So I I, I love the wording here, fulfilled, finished. Delivered. It sounds vaguely spiritual. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at the processes of completion, being being fulfilled, finished, and delivered. And what exactly is the difference between these three words? Today we're looking at the first five verses of Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas have returned to Syrian Antioch from which they had left for their first missionary journey. That journey took them, as we have seen, through the island of Cyprus and then Asia Minor. We ended last week with verses 27 through 28 of Acts 14. It said... uh, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. In typical Luke fashion, without much ado, he immediately moves into a new account in the lives of Paul and Barnabas. And we'll read uh, chapter 15, 1 through 5. 
But some men came down from Judea. You know, doesn't that remind you of some men came down from Antioch? Or some men came down from Iconium to Lystra. People are following Paul around, making trouble almost wherever he goes. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, there were eight early church councils, including this first one in Jerusalem in AD 58 to 59. We're not quite certain exactly when that was. The others, um, the first council of Nicaea in AD 325 was called by the Emperor Constantine to get a church-wide agreement on the nature of Christ and the concept of the Trinity. But there were others, uh, the first council of Constantinople. And if we say that there was a first council of Constantinople, that means that there was a second. And yes, there was a third. So we have first, second, and third of those. And there was a second council of Nicaea. And all of these met between A.D. 150 to A.D. 520 and largely dealt with false teachers and false teaching. Arianism, Apollonarianism, Sibelianism, and all these other isms, okay? We're not covering those today. But this first council was also going to cover false teaching. And false teaching would plague the church for... The first 2,023 years of his existence, uh, more or less, false teaching plagues us even to this day in the Christian church. Now, out of all those councils where the church got together to deal with false teaching and to solidify the teaching about Christ and what, what it actually meant, John MacArthur argues that This very first council, as informal as it is, is the most important council that has ever happened in Christianity because it dealt with the question of what a person must do to be saved. That is sort of foundational to everything that comes later. What? What? must a person do to be saved? The admittance of Gentiles into Christianity without first becoming converts to Judaism upset the Hebrew church in Jerusalem. And you might notice that when it says that Paul and 
and Barnabas traveled through Samaria and Phoenicia and were received with great joy. It does not say that they were received with great joy in Jerusalem. It says, as a matter of fact, that they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. They were welcomed. That's polite, okay? That is not being received with great joy. This Jerusalem church, after all, was the first church. They're the ones who put everything together. They're the ones who, uh, Rush Limbaugh used to say, the pioneers take the arrows. The Jerusalem church took all the arrows. And now they're spreading out and bringing the news to other people. The Jerusalem church was composed of the apostles and disciples of Jesus. And all of those people who had walked and talked and eaten with Jesus. They knew Jesus. But did they know the church of Jesus? They were all scrupulous Jews. MacArthur says also that they saw Christianity as the culmination of Judaism and that it was unfair for Gentiles to waltz into the place like they owned it. The Jews, this was promised to the Jews and they carefully looked by all the promises to be a blessing to the nations but this was for them and suddenly we have the blessing going out to the Gentiles And they don't have to do anything other than believe in Jesus. They don't have to keep the law. They don't have to be kosher. They don't have to be... They have to do none of these things. They had dedicated... The Jews in Jerusalem had dedicated themselves to God's law and could not conceive of pagans entering the church on an equal basis with themselves and... Remember, of course, that a scrupulous Jew would not enter the house of a Gentile, nor would they have a Gentile enter their house, lest their house be defiled. And keep that in mind, because this is going to come up in this early church. Acts 15.1 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Once again, as I said, the phrase some men came down from Jerusalem means that they, I mean, came down from Judea means that they came from Jerusalem itself. Judea and Jerusalem were, were interchangeable. And in an age that did not view north as up and south as down, we do that in our common map-oriented days, Saying that they came down from Judea means that considering that Jerusalem was situated in mountains at an elevation of 2,700 feet, when you left Jerusalem, you necessarily coming down from Jerusalem. Okay? So they were coming down, but some men came down from Jerusalem. Now, they were not sent by the church in Jerusalem to go to city in Antioch, they traveled on their own dime without any marching orders from the elders and the apostles, which we'll see just a little bit later here in Acts. Rather, they traveled on their own accord without instructions from the church, 10 days travel, because it was 255 miles away, 
uh, average to 25 miles a day, maybe, if things are good. 10-day travel just to agitate the believers in city and Antioch. And I can't imagine that they were doing anything other than that. City and Antioch was really not in their sphere of trade. It was not on their boating routes. Now the apostle Peter was living in Antioch at this time. He was not in Jerusalem. He was in Antioch and would have been one of those people that came together as the church to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say about their trip. Peter had had no problem living and dining with Gentile believers in city in Antioch. Remember that God, through the Holy Spirit, had sent him to Caesarea to uh, Cornelius the centurion to bring him into faith. Now, centurion, uh, the centurion Cornelius was known as a God-fearing man. Whether he was a proselyte to Judaism or not, we're not positive, but he was a God-fearing man. So that's not out of the ordinary, but were his friends and neighbors God-fearers? Because he invited everybody to hear Paul, and a number became Christians. So Peter has no problem eating and dining with Gentile believers in the church. And remember that dining, that taking communion, sharing a communion meal back then was a meal. It was not what we do here. They sat down together, Jew and Gentile, together to partake of a meal in the presence of the Lord. That was a communion meal then. Peter had no trouble doing it. But then these men come from, uh, down from Jerusalem and put pressure on the Jewish believers in Antioch. The Apostle Paul gives an account of this moment in church history in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Now, we're going to cover this a little bit later, but if the gospel of Mark was not the first book written, and there's a lot of earliest date for Mark possibly being written was 46 AD. Most scholars think it's between 48 AD and 55. We're talking about 48 right here. If Mark was not the first scripture written, Galatians, the letter to the Galatians is. And we know that Paul got back from Galatia and immediately wrote the churches that he had started there. Okay? And he reports in Galatians on what's now going on when the believers come down from Jerusalem to Syrian Antioch. And here's what he says. And this is verses, like I said, 11 through, I think I said 14, 14. And he tells the church, pure pagan believers, Gentile believers, they're not pagans now, but they are Gentile believers. He says, but when Cephas, which is Peter, as you all know, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So that's the background of what is going on here. This is when Peter, uh, when Paul confronts Peter with the truth of what the gospel actually means. Paul was furious with Peter over the perversion of the message of Christ, angry enough to oppose him to his face. The great friend of Jesus, Peter, that Jesus named the rock, might have been sarcastic a little, but walked ate with Jesus, challenges him to his face over these men coming down from Jerusalem. Barnabas was only led astray for a moment. Acts 15, 2 continues. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, and would you not like to know exactly what was said by Paul and Barnabas entirely to Peter and the men from Jerusalem. And I would bet you 10 to 1, though we don't bet, that Peter changed his mind in a hurry and saw the error of his ways, the way he had fallen into error. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And Peter did accompany them on this trip. As the discussion about circumcising Gentile believers had gone so far as to ensnare even one of Jesus' closest friends, a delegation, Paul and Barnabas and others were sent to inquire of the Jerusalem church about this problem. And very definitely this will be Paul and Barnabas and the Syrian and the Syrian church in Antioch against the Jewish church in Jerusalem because it is believed if you'll recall John Mark left this missionary journey he didn't like something going on and he left it and went back to Jerusalem and people think though it's not in scripture that it was John Mark's report about what was going on in the Gentile church in Galatia that sparked these men coming to the Antioch church, largely Gentile with some Jewish believers in Syria. That John Mark was the catalyst for this. We don't know it. That might be casting aspersions. Anyway, it's Paul, Barnabas, and the Syrian Antioch church against the Hebrew believers about what the very message of Jesus Christ meant as delivered. And about who his kingdom, who his church, whose Jesus' offer of salvation through grace was meant for. Was it really just meant for Jews? Or was there more going on here? Verse 3 says that. So being sent on their way by the church, 
they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Samaria, of course, was evangelized by Philip in the aftermath of the stoning of Stephen when Paul was Saul of Tarsus then was ravaging the church, drove the believers out of Judea, meaning Jerusalem, and into the countryside. Many fled into Samaria. Philip the evangelist was one of them. And he took this message and he brought Christianity to the pseudo-Jews of Samaria. You know, uh, we've studied it before, but the Samaritans were despised, as we can tell from the when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, it's basically saying, you know, that there are no Good Samaritans. Because that's what the Jews believed. Not Jesus, but that's what the, the Jews believed. And because they were despised, because they were a half-breed nation, they set up their own competing Jerusalem with their own temple on a mountain. So the Jews despised them, and Philip brought Jesus Christ to them. And they accepted him with joy. Keeping that in mind, Phoenicia would refer, because it said Phoenicia and Samaria, would refer to Caesarea, where Peter went to, the Cornelius the centurion. Uh, Apostle Peter was summoned by the Holy Spirit to evangelize Phoenicia. Both the half-breed Jews of Samaria, who were called to be Christians, and the Gentile believers of Caesarea being beneficiaries of the outreach to non-Jews of Christianity responded to the news of the successful direct outreach to the Gentiles of Galatia ah, with great joy, as it says here. But not so much in Jerusalem, verses 4 through 5 say, when they came to Jerusalem, They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The disciples were received respectfully by the church, by both the apostles still remaining in Jerusalem and the elders of the church, which would include James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem at the time. But others, referred to as belonging to the party of the Pharisees, did not react the same. Now, the Pharisees of Judaism saw many converts to Christianity, The Apostle Paul had been one, as you'll recall. So had Nicodemus, uh, the great Jewish rabbi Gamaliel, a Pharisee as well, is celebrated by the Orthodox Church as an early Christian saint. The reason the Pharisees, many converted to Christianity, is because they were the ones who were studying the scriptures. They were the ones who knew the prophecies about the Messiah. They were the ones who were strict in their observance. And if they were convinced that the Messiah had come, the Pharisees of all the Jews would be the ones to become Christians. However, uh, you can apparently take the Pharisee out of Judaism 
But they were still a Pharisee when they got to Christianity. As they were the rabbis and scribes of Israel, they were the most familiar with the prophecies of the Messiah. In that light, upon embracing Jesus as the Christ and as the Messiah, they, as the teachers of Jewish law, were insistent that all Christians, converted pagans and all, need to be circumcised. And circumcision was long an impediment to pagan men becoming Jews. Many more pagan women became Jews than pagan men. And that is a demonstrated fact. It was an impediment to God-fearing Gentiles to keeping God's law as well. So, a question here is, why did these Pharisaical Christians believe as they did? Why did they not understand the full magnitude of the change Jesus ushered into history? Okay, why, why did they cling to Judaism? Well, the apostles, they call it the apostles' kerygma. I pointed that out before. The apostles' early teaching was basically Old Testament prophecy, the life and ministry of Jesus, the death and the resurrection, and that is what was preached. And what is missing in that message? Well, there's a lot missing in that message that people could not get from it. You can become a Christian that way, but you might have some false understanding about what Christianity means. Remember that in less... Mark came first. There was no scripture written in the New Testament until Galatians, until Paul challenges this teaching. There was nowhere to go. I'm sure that every convert to Christianity knew the stories of Jesus' life and knew a number of his sayings. But did they know everything that he was saying? It was... We're talking 15 years after the death of Christians uh, of Jesus here. And now we have people starting in the year AD 48 with Paul and Mark, maybe, putting down before it left memory what Jesus had done. Remember, if they were Jesus' age when Jesus died, they're now closing on 50. Lifespans though you could live as long as they do now, lifespans were tentative. There was illness. There was death from injury all around them. And they start putting down on paper what Jesus said, what Jesus did. And then these councils that we're talking about went through to see how how Christians now should live their lives in light of New Testament scripture which is just beginning here so these 15 years later disciples of Jesus begin to write down the words and events of his life without scripture to guide them how could this party of Pharisees possibly know everything that everything had changed with the coming of the kingdom of God. How could they know that Judaism has been replaced? 
Would they even understand the fullness of what Jesus, of what the coming of Jesus meant? Even today, I think most Christians think that uh, when Jesus said that he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, his quote that Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And I think Christians today take the, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill the prophecies. Okay? But that's not what Jesus says. He says, I came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Did they know what Jesus, what happens when Jesus fulfills the law? Fulfill does not mean to obey the law. Okay? And this is how the party of the Pharisees were taking it. That does not mean to obey the law. It means to bring the law to a desired goal. Fulfill means to fill up and complete and to bring to a full expression. Okay? It was to complete the law, to fill it up and complete it. Um, And Jesus fulfilled not just prophecy and the law, but he completed the entire storyline of the Old Testament. And I love that. The Old Testament is done with Jesus. And it's not because somebody started writing a New Testament, but it's because Jesus finished the Jewish religion and the Old Testament at the same time. There was no further for Judaism to go. And God proved that 30 years after Jesus' death with the destruction of the temple. I've talked to you often about the Talmud and the Mishnah. The Talmud was written to explain to the Jews who were taken out of Israel during the Babylonian exile what Judaism meant until the Talmud was written it was not even known if God Jehovah could be worshipped outside of Jerusalem out of Israel the question from the Babylonian Jews was can we still worship God in Babylonia or in Babylon And the response was both the Jews in the rabbis in Jerusalem and the rabbis in Babylon writing the Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, which is really simply a commentary on the Torah, on the Tanakh, on the entire Old Testament. The Mishnah. The Mishnah was written by Jewish rabbis after the destruction of the temple to explain how Judaism could continue. They made up new rules, and I I don't mean that lightly. I'm not going to say they were just making it up and say we're going along. But the temple was destroyed. Their worship was destroyed, and the Jewish rabbis, after the destruction of the temple, wrote the Mishnah to try and justify continued worship in Judaism. But it cannot be justified. And it cannot be justified by Jesus. Jesus ended Judaism, ended the Old Testament age, and brought in the new kingdom. And with that lecture, I now get to find where I am in this. So...
I'm sure that part of the apostles' teaching were the events of the crucifixion, the words of Jesus, that Jesus spoke on the cross. But it is clear that the party of the Pharisees did not understand what Jesus meant when he uttered, it is finished. Because many things were finished when he uttered that. Jesus' life was over. Jesus' ministry was over. The, the work he was doing for God was over. But more than that, the power of sin and Satan was finished. Man was no longer dead in trespasses, in sin against God. Jesus' final words as received and uh, as recorded in the Gospel of John, and remember John was his very best friend, better even than Peter. John was the one Jesus loved. John was at the foot of the cross, one of the few who actually saw Jesus' crucifixion and death. John records his last words as tetelestai. And our translation says that means it is finished. But that is not what it means. Tetelestai is an accounting term, a common term in Judaism, in, in commerce. Tetelestai actually means that the debt is paid. The debt is paid. Now you can get it is finished out of that. But tetelestai actually means the debt is paid. And with that payment to the Father by Jesus, the debt mankind had owed God since the fall in the garden had been paid. And with the payment of man's debt for sin, something else was finished. Like I said, the Jewish religion is over. Christ replaced it on the cross. Jewish ceremonial law was completed. The Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled. The law had been completed and Jesus had delivered his people to the Father. God would remove his temple from Israel. His kingdom would be moved to all nations. And with that, God's testament, his new testament, and you know, we, we think of the Old Testament as being this book of the Bibles. It's what God was telling people for 2,000 years. And then we think of the New Testament, of God telling his people the new story for 2,000 years. And yes, that's true. But think, the Old Testament, what's it testifying to? It's testifying to God. The New Testament, what is the New Testament testifying to? It's testifying to God after Judaism. And that's really what it means. The New Testament would be heard and written down by his faithful servants to guide all of us called to his kingdom. Because through the obedience of Christ, through the obedience of Christ, the Old Testament had been fulfilled. It had been finished. And it had been delivered. And the new replaced the old. And that's where we are today. Let's close in prayer.